All right, you ready? Yeah, Ben. You're waiting on me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <let> me... <laughs> just, just a little bit. I don't know. We've just been doing our thing. Uh, I'm not just, worried about it. Just I just figure if I don't us. say anything, we'll just be goofing around for another hour and be like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to record something. <laughs> <laughs> just the two of us. <laughs> We can make it. We can we make it try. if we try. Just, Just the two, two of us. <laughs> Welcome back to the Aviation RC New Podcast. You found us. My name is Joe. And I'm Matt. We're here to be with you along your journey and to share our experiences in RC Aviation. If you have any questions, thoughts, or want to share a flight story, hit us up at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. Now, buckle in. Let's take off. And we're back. Welcome back to episode 44. Uh, looks like today we're going to be talking about night flights and RC lighting. Matthew, how you been doing, bud? I'm doing good, man. How about you, Joe? I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, so it, you were wanting to, I guess, get into uh, putting lights on your on your models, on your planes, and uh, in preparation for that, because you hadn't yeah. taken that step yet, you wanted to kind of go into uh, what it means and what it what it takes to fly at night, the the rules mm -hmm. around all that, and then a little bit of prep info on putting lights on your plane. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's pretty fair. Uh, that's I'm honestly I've been looking at that for a long while, mm -hmm. um, and as I build this Marabou. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a quiet night away uh, from closing that model up with a plastic skin and I don't want to redo it later. So I, I wanted to have it. So it's a nice, easy glider to just chill out at dusk with. And then as it turns into night, just like if, if it's nice, then I'm going to enjoy it. Um, but to do that, I need lights. Yeah. And so I want to put, I want to build them in. And that's a good foray because it's a glider, so uh, it should just be, you know, it shouldn't be any skin off anything's nose to get it working. So I, I figured it'd be a good model to start with. Nice. All right. Well, um, before we dive into all that, why don't we take uh, a short bit and talk about what we've been doing yeah, man. like we always do. Yeah, of course. Hey, well, how about, look, uh, let me start because then you can say what you've been working on. And then I'm going to get into the, all the other junk. So, uh, sure. But I I want to do a touch of house cleaning before we actually go into that. I'm sorry, I meant to. Oh, that's okay. Uh, just enough to say, uh, I apologize for last episode. Um, and I know Matt, you'll say, oh, don't worry about it. But oh, that's okay. Uh, I I had done some uh some adjusting. I was working on some gain on my microphone, and so. Oh. Uh, if you heard issues, it was me uh, clipping on yeah. my microphone. So, uh, complaints uh, go to Joe at aviationrcnoob.com. Yeah, I'll take that one this time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Only on the last episode. On episode 43, if you didn't like it, uh, you can just blame Joe. That's right. That's right. So hopefully I've got that rectified. I shouldn't be blowing my mic out this time. No, I think and, we'll um, All right. So Matt, what you been working on? Um, I've been working... Uh, well... Okay, so I've been working on a lot of the same stuff. 
Uh, really trying to get the Prandtl, really working on like the submissions for the Hangar RC Build Challenge. So I'm trying to get them in the air and get some decent footage, get some really good footage is what I was trying to do. Um, and I had very varying degrees of success with it. I submitted the Prandtl D uh, wing, which I've got some footage for. I've got some great plans. It's one of those ones I've been wanting to make. Uh, I would love it to be a kit. So I thought that that's what a great opportunity to put that in there. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a, a flight test style, which I've built. And I just haven't really uh, flown so and, and gotten some good footage of at least. Um, so I've been trying to get that in the air. And every time I do, it doesn't want to turn left to save its life. I, I mean, it does yeah. a little bit. And I think it's after doing a couple different tests here and there, like it would just do. I mean, I literally flew for probably about three minutes doing circles all the way out to the road. <laughs> and it's pretty far away. So, um, and I just couldn't get it to, no matter how much I turned to the left or whatever, it just wasn't doing it. Right. Um, and maybe it's because I was, I don't know. I, I don't think it's overturning. Anyway, I might've had the motor too high and the torque from the 2212, uh, was it a 2200 KV motor with a five inch prop is what's on it. Um, you're putting, Putting that up there, I think it might have had too much torque, and it kept like trying to turn it to the right. And I guess the control surfaces aren't big enough to counteract that, maybe. Or, um, but you know, when the when the when the motor was low, I was able to fly it okay. Um, when I gave it another go today, I also put a pod on there on the bottom, which actually worked out great because something to hold on to and launch with, um, and I can put the battery far enough up that I don't need any ballast. I just have the battery, which is awesome. It makes it lighter. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a success. <clears throat> um, but unfortunately, I also went out today with a little bit of time. And of course, everybody's there. So what do I do is I hand launch it and I dink it into the ground and bust the nose off. And it's like, oh, no. And then man. by the time I got it back into the air, everybody else is like, oh, I got to go. You know, and so they don't see like the success. They just see me dinking the plane <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> oh, there goes Matt dinking yeah, another one. I'm telling you, that's got to be what they think, you know. <laughs> um, the Marabou is ready. Uh, I actually went through and reinforced the the center former. Um, so the very first former, I doubled up, and then I, I double-checked a couple of the other things. I also pulled off. Um, I, I set up one wing as it was originally, as I designed it, with like a triangular spar. And the second one, I said, you know, I don't think I need the triangle. I think it's going to be strong enough with the three barbecue uh, campfire skewers. So I left those there. So I basically went through and kind of undid the triangle so that they're the same. Okay. Um, and so now I'm, I'm truly at the point where I have to decide, you know, am I going to put lights in this thing? Because that was kind of one of the things I was thinking would be really neat. Uh, it's put lights in it so that I could fly it at dusk and just kind of glide it around until it got dark and, you know, bring it in at my leisure and enjoy it. Um, but it's going to have a plastic skin and I didn't want to have to like undo it to put lights in later after it flies. And then, you know, and then kind of like maybe mess up everything and have to redo the whole plane. So I figured, well, let me, let me actually put lights in. And that's kind of where all of this started. Um, and then I also got the Tiny Hawk 2 Freestyle. I mentioned I had it uh, come in for around Christmas time, and I hadn't really had a chance to mess with it. But this past couple of weeks, I've, I have been able to get it out and get it flying. 
and I took it out to the park a little bit with moderate success. Uh, I've been rolling around my yard a little bit, and I took it out to the field today uh, and enjoyed doing a little bit of, I'll call it gate flying. I don't know. Um, flying a little bit low and under things. and um, But it's it's a fast, <laughs> agile plane or a- agile craft. So, uh, you know, the, the quadcopter goes into the air at like 20, 25% throttle. So the, the hover window is, is pretty small. Yeah. Um, so I, I might have to do a little bit of uh, moving the expo around a little bit. And I might be able to then fly it a little bit easier to to do more, I'll call it gate flying or, or more racing style flight. But it was a lot of fun. It's been a great, great craft. I also pulled out the old one, uh, the Tiny Hawk 2, just a regular one. And I got that working and it's working pretty good. So I'll probably take that and, you know, goof that around the yard and have some fun with that there. Uh, it's got protected props so I could do it if the kids are around, you know, running in the yard or something, I might be able to zoom it around the other half of the yard or something. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to injure anybody with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I've been up to. So, uh, no, I, I injured my back uh, a couple weeks ago. And, I, you know, I've really just been recovering from that. There's definitely no, uh, the, the little Cessna is a lot of climbing around and bending down and grabbing stuff. And I can't do that with a bad back. So, I, I've been kind of just laying off the full scale stuff for now until I heal. Uh, it's killing me, but uh, I'd rather do that and do it right when I get a chance to get back to it. So, but that's it. What about you, Joe? Uh, well, it's going to sound crazy. I'm actually currently currently looking through a 3D program trying to find a object I imported. Uh, imported? Wow, really issue. Uh, looking for <laughs> that um, that huge program I was working on running anyway if yeah but it's tied into what what what's the news because all right sorry yeah so uh let's see uh last two weeks so the friday night before the episode went live um i was up pretty much all night finishing up editing uh there was a bit of a impromptu build party i think and then there was supposed to be Uh, the one was and then the next week uh, i flaked I fell asleep. I got tired. Sorry. I think that was the week before. I think yeah. I just fired up and said, hey, I'm building. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so I got the uh, Nubatross finished up that night while I was editing the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was up until like four o'clock that morning um, doing finalizations of all that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I went out the next day to maiden it with my... Uh, a youth pastor from a church. He was wanting to to see it, and so I went out there and you know got out there and got the plane pulled out and hooked all up. And you know his kids came out, his wife came out, and everybody's all excited. And I realized I had left the batteries on the oh. table in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> you pulled them out, Alan. <laughs> yeah, you did do that one time, oh, man, and I I'm, think I gave you a hard time about uh, it. Too. I know, right? Well, <laughs> you know you. I deserved it at the time, and I think you deserve the ribbon now, but, you know, it yep, happens. Yep. It's really what it comes down to. Like today, I went out, I had two batteries, one to power the goggles and one to power the plane. I didn't think I might need another. <laughs> and so when I did need the other, I was out of recording piece, you know, like I couldn't record FPV. Right. You know? So I was like, oh, man. Anyway, but yeah, it happens. 
so but it's always disappointing <sighs> yeah so anyway um fortunately he was gracious gracious enough that i uh i ran back home i lived like 20 minutes away grabbed my batteries and came back out and we got we decided we were gonna go ahead and put it in the air now he had a nice big open field uh that was a farmer's uh that was out by his place um it had been cut down so it was pretty decent to fly at um but it was very windy but i knew this was gonna be my one chance to get in the air but what i thought was supposed to be like 10 15 mile an hour winds was probably mm -hmm. considerably more um that or just 15 mile an hour winds is scarier than i thought it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you're well, trying to put something in the air yeah especially when it's brand new <laughs> yeah so um it, and the, I, I didn't tell you this because i was saving all these stories for when we sat down to record um i had him hand launch it for me and so i said you gotta hold it right hold the wings level give it some some up tilt so you're not darting it into the ground and um you know i throttled up and i said okay you know when i go you know when i say go i'm going and what i didn't tell him was to chuck it a little bit mm -hmm. um <laughs> so i throttled up hard and i started all right here we go and he go and it and just, not his fault he, he pretty like much airplane just let it go a uh, paper airplane toss yeah yeah just barely or just like let the plane go let it come out of his hand on his yeah. under its own power and oh, immediately no. i saw what happened so i cut the throttle and it just belly landed <laughs> and i said okay that was entirely my fault i need you to chuck it a bit right um you know so it's a big plane i got like big wingspan i need to get some movement to uh to get in the air and then right. the next hand launch it was it was in the air okay um now remember i told you that uh it was yardsticks wooden yardsticks i was using mm -hmm. as a wing spar yeah um, on the on the flat way right like it's not right. like up and down that would keep it stiffer i guess mm -hmm. than on a long thing it was flat because you wanted a thin profile right thin profile of the wing um now what that resulted in is there could be some flex in the wing and boy howdy oh, <laughs> yeah. those wings flex um we were both laughing and cackling the whole time because it, it looked like the plane was up there just flapping its wings the wind was beating <laughs> it so bad <laughs> those wings oh. i thought i was going to break the wings mid-flight okay um but fighting fighting the wind and it i couldn't even tell you how it was handling because i never backed off the throttle it was just full <laughs> controls in any direction fighting the wind to bring it around and right after a minute or two i, I belly landed it um, we walked out picked it up kind of had a look at it but i had uh lined the whole underside with tape mm, because good. i knew that it had rained um i didn't want moisture getting to it on a on a belly land so yeah it handled the landing just fine we did another takeoff right there and uh cool i i decided to get it up a ways to get it into some cleaner air um still decent winds but it'd be cleaner it was I was fighting it for some reason. Um, it got a little further away from me than I wanted. I was working on bringing it back. I lost orientation on it a couple times. So you saw a, gl a glider up there doing some loop-de-loops mm -hmm. before uh, I finally <laughs> was trying to bring it back in. Thought I was going to clear this tree that was over here and did not. Um, yeah, one, one wing ejected out of the fuse on impact. Uh, the other oh. one is what ultimately kept it hung up in the tree because this was a 40 <laughs> uh, 44 45 inch wing uh 
sticking off the out of the right, side of the just fuse. the one side, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and so between that and the tail, like it we spent forty five minutes trying to get it out of the tree. Um <laughs> so and when we finally got it out, it, whether what, what it the was, way, before you get too far. Uh, being that high, what were the what were the thoughts that went through your head and what were the methods that you were thinking, okay, this is probably our best bet? And would you end up using? Uh neither of those I can talk about. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, the, okay, the, okay. Thought, the, the thought process was let me throttle it up and see if i can maybe jo- know, pop it out yeah jostle it out um and it would not mm-hmm. uh and so what we ultimately ended up doing should not be done um but he he pulled out his eight foot eight foot ladder i think mm-hmm. and got out a um a roller pole like you're rolling the walls of your house yeah or the ceiling or whatever yeah uh and extended that out to max ended up putting a roller on the top for a little more and then we found a bungee cord out there that we worked on bungee cording and then lanyard from my from a transmitter neck strap tying and wrapping <laughs> a, a like another six yeah. foot stick to the end of this pole to finally and he was Again, this is not something suggested to do. I didn't even want him up that high because he was the one on the ladder. He insisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was on the very, very top of the ladder, and I was holding it. I said, dude, if you come off this ladder, your wife's going to kill me. Right. Um, so definitely not recommended. And it took us a long time, but we finally got the plane out. Um, And that's when I found out. Um, I don't know if I talked about it much on air, but I put a a wooden coupler in the fuselage that the wings slotted into. Yeah, you talked Okay. So that cracked. Okay. Um, that was that was the main damage. One wing took a big branch impact, but it would have been fine. But with in the motor, I broke the prop, but the tail section was fine. Everything else was fine, but that that coupler inside snapped. Um and okay. that's gonna be a process to get into. So I didn't I didn't have time to rebuild it or get in there and fix it and try to maiden it again before the end of the the deadline so Okay. But it, it did, did you get fly. any video of it flying as messy as it might have been? Uh, or a I picture tried. or two? No, not really. Uh okay. so I didn't pull my phone out and hand, I could have handed my phone to one of the kids and said, you know, one of the kids that he had out there that's right. little toddler or, age or 6 even year just old have him, and, like hey uh, give you know take a couple of yeah. no didn't think that far ahead did you nope uh and well here's the thing i had the fpv on it like i mounted the fpv camera okay i took the goggles i strapped the goggles to the head of one of the kids oh right and it was but, like here you get to fly with the plane right and you know you get to watch this but i i i said oh wait i didn't hit record only take it back i hit record the, the red numbers started ticking. I was good. And I handed it back, put that back on the kid's head. Uh-oh. And then we went. Now. Right. But it's possible they would hit the button on oh, adjusting on their head. And maybe turning it back off. Or, yeah. or the file. If you forgot to turn it off, I think on those goggles, if you forget to pause it or, or stop it, it doesn't finish the file. Like, Whatever. so you, you may have, like, you know. I don't know. It could be yeah. it could be a lot of things, sadly. Until you are really familiar with the goggles, you won't know. What ultimately happened was I got the goggles back from the kid mm-hmm. and it wasn't recording. 
Oh. And I checked, I checked the saved videos, and it went all the way back to the Corsair videos. Okay. Uh, so there was nothing. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what happened. Um, I know the kids were, as they were handling the goggles, they were hitting buttons a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, hey, that's kids. Yeah, it's kids. I'm, I'm not upset at that. How about the silver lining of this? Like, did the kids really enjoy having the goggles on? We're like, whoa, cool. Yeah, the one that was in the goggles, he yeah. thought it was amazing. Yeah, cool. Um, well, congratulations. You just... Yeah. You you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just didn't get my footage, yeah, so... Well. But that's okay. Um, So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the state of that. I do want to revisit it, but with the... Uh, with a submission deadline passed, uh, the uh, urgency on that has dropped a bit. And I squirreled. Um, I had a shower <laughs> thought. <laughs> I had a squirrel thought. Uh, squirrel thought. Wow. I had a shower thought one morning um, that I've spent a couple days contemplating on. And I uh, spoke with you a bit about it. And long story short, there's now a uh, DJI Phantom 3 Pro sitting in the back of my car okay uh that i purchased off my campus oh, pasture right, was yeah. his yeah so joe's into quads and has a camera quad and uh a very nice camera quad used that i picked up at a pretty good price nice um and so the last week yeah pretty much all last week over the weekend yesterday was all just looking into what what can I do with the drones um, and quads, and specifically in the direction of side gig is why I got it. You know what what can I do with it? What can I uh, what services can be offered with them? Uh, and so I've been looking at ortho mosaic uh, mapping and agricultural stuff and oh man you went image deep. analysis oh buddy I mean big time. And then uh, today, uh, started listening to a video while I was on the road uh, dealing with Part One Hundred Seven. Oh yeah, um, prepping for Part One, prepping to go take the Part One Hundred Seven in the mm -hmm. near future. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, did you was... did you share a link uh, of that down? Uh... Yes, it's down in the bottom of the show notes. Fantastic. That way, everybody can. If you're interested in learning more, uh, Joe was saying that this video pretty much covers all the older stuff because it's like four years old or so right yeah it's four or five um and it was like the 107 guide i guess it, it was basically a, a guy you know went and took what could be three or four hundred dollars of classwork at the time and made a video mm -hmm. covering it all for the part 107 at the time now with it being four or five years old some things have changed so right. this is still a good one to it'll get most uh, of it and then, yeah. you know, you can look around and there's other people kind of filling in the gap of the old versus new. Mm -hmm. And the comment sections actually, you will know, say, you know, this is pretty good. Here's some topics to make sure you're up to speed on. Um, but supposedly some folks have watched this and uh, gone and taken a test and still been doing like 75s and 80s, which is enough to pass. But I don't want to just do 75 or 80. I want to be up to speed. But. You know, it, most of the information is still relevant, and then there's some holes to fill in over the last five years. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. I, I know they've been updating as they kind of go, but, I mean, most of the stuff is basically the, I'll call it a basic 
airman certificate because when you got the part 107 back then you were essentially a limited airman um which is basically a pilot you know yeah yeah and you were limited obviously to remote uh uas wait yeah uas's um but uh still they wanted you to have i'll call it a basic core knowledge you know yeah and buddy by core knowledge um it's if you (laughs) yeah if you've not looked into 107 at all um it's and i hadn't really uh i mean so far and i'm a little over an hour in we've looked at uh just drone flight rules, visibility yeah. rules, yeah. you know, height requirements. We've looked at class, uh, air, airspace classes. Mm-hmm. We've looked Being at... Being able to read sectional maps. Yeah, sectional maps was a big one. And, uh, and there was some serious time spent on that, you know, mm-hmm. how to identify the airspaces, how to read them, how the questions will be posed. And there's just a ton of information on those. Uh Actually, the 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 multi-com, single-com, you know, frequencies and such. And what is the 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 METAR? 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 METAR. METAR. It, it's, uh, I, man, I, I should be, like, able to blah out all the, it's a meteorological, yeah, it's basically the medi- and blah, blah, meteorological blah, blah, report. Radar yeah. stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a report. And, and it's basically, like, it's Greek. <laughs> until you know what it means right and it's it's basically done to economize on radio airtime mm-hmm. you know is really what it is so that they basically say hey in these short blips of information you should be able to get basically a solid enough picture of what's going on in the air around you to be able to make informed decisions as a pilot both where you're going and, and where you might be going from you know like yeah so it, it's yeah. it's a lot there's a lot in there there is, but now I mean, just. But so how much do you quick, really need to know as a remote pilot? Eh. That is. I mean, I have yet to see it entirely, but I get it. You know, they want you to understand what's available, and you should be able to use those things because they're they're very valuable. Um, if yeah. you want to know what's coming, forecast wise, the METARs are great. Hmm. Yeah. So all that looping back to what I was talking about earlier, which was one of the things that you can do with the drones that I'm looking at is uh, orthomosaic photography, which is to is basically mapping mm-hmm. uh, of, a, of an area. Fly the drone up, point the camera straight down, fly a pattern, take pictures, and then process through that through software to line it all up and make a bigger image that would be a map of an area. And then you can even run it through other uh, other software that will do more things to analyze it, or even give you a 3D reconstruction of the area uh, mm-hmm. off the pictures. And so that's what we were. That's what I was running pre-show before we got recording, and was still going as we got started. And that was the oh, it's done. Um, oh, so yeah. Anyway, that that's all I was commenting on since you and I were talking about it beforehand. Yeah. Um, I, it did export, uh, and so it took so long cause I, it ended up exporting an object, which okay. is a third, which I've tried to open in blender and it imported, but I don't see it anywhere. So I'll have to mess with this later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, during, during the show as we record, although there may be plenty of time while I talk about some of these subjects, um, maybe not the best. 
what? optimal time for you to concentrate on what's going on there. That's right. That's all. Um, oh, uh, before I get too far, I forgot the sky javelin. It's my one of my submissions to the build off. I, I basically mm-hmm. submitted the two things. Uh, the sky javelin was basically looks like an airliner, but like a dart shaped airliner. And I was able to get it up into the air and fly it, but poorly. Um, and I was thinking, oh, it needs a bigger, more powerful prop. And so there was good news in that. Um, and there was a couple, like I did the landing gear thing again, and it works again, which is great. Nice. Yeah, it made me really happy. Um, the problem was is that uh, apparently it's not high enough. And the prop, when it started to basically level out, the prop would hit. And so I'm uh, like, oh, man. <laughs> cut um, the grass. Yeah, I was like, oh, I don't need to be trimming the grass. It's already short enough. Um, and so I ended up busting one prop and the whole front end uh, and, and one of the Oof. strikes. I was like, oh, I got to rebuild it. So I rebuilt it. And when I rebuilt it, I may have accidentally put too much down thrust angle. I, I couldn't see it, like looking at it, but I may have because when I got it, I basically, I tried to get it up in the air again. It had the same issue. I put a little bit larger prop, um, kept striking on the ground. I did give it, I did redo the landing gear so it was taller. So it wouldn't strike, uh, but it still did. So I was like, oh, uh, all right, I'm going to pick it up. And with any luck, I'll do a toss and it'll be great. And I think you may have seen the video. Um, I, I don't think I'm ever going to hand toss again. I, I think I'm done. If I have to hand toss, I'm going to just, I'm just going to break my plan in half and just go home. <laughs> just Because it's thing. just, yeah, save I the event. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand it either. It's just, I never have a chance at it. It's just awful. So, uh, yeah. So basically I doinked it into the ground and it kind of like bounced and like leveled out a little bit enough where it survived the first one. And then, so I picked it up again and I tried it again with maybe making some adjustments based on what I saw in that brief moment of release, um, only for it to basically crack in half right in front of the wings. And then the mm-hmm. wings, the one wing bent at a crease that was already kind of there. It's where the uh, servo and the aileron are cut. So it's kind of a weak spot, which, which is good. It kind of told me some things there. Um, and then there's enough, there's enough damage. I'm going to have to rebuild it. So, as far as getting a great video of it flying through the air going, whoa, look at that plane. It's amazing. I should build one. Uh, it's going to have to wait till I get a chance to print another one out, which might be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it may be that's what I build in my second build or my third build where I build. I'll see. Anyway, okay. so uh, that's I just that was a thing that I did this week as well. <laughs> Destroyed that plane. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand how how you continue to spike them like that. Like, I, I launch them, and they generally go kind of up. I, I don't know. And then they start like to you, veer down. And Are I, you upping too hard and stalling them? I, I don't know. Well, here's the thing is I don't know if I have the tail at the right angle to begin with. Like, I don't have a model for this thing. This is literally from real flight from a couple pictures and a three mm-hmm. view, like a, you know, 3d view. I don't know how they're aligned. I'm assuming they're level in some parts. And so I think I put the tail, I may have put it too far one way or the other. And so like setting it up level is actually setting it up to tank into the nose, you know, tank down and in, into the ground. Like, I don't know. I don't okay. think so. I didn't think so, but you know, maybe that was, maybe that's the case. Um, 
I don't know. So we'll see. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so with that, uh, yesterday, if we were recording the day after Valentine's Day, and that means that the Builderoy Build-Off uh, 2022 inaugural Build-Off Challenge by the Hangar RC, uh, as co-sponsored by uh, yours truly here at the Aviation RC Noob or the RC After Hours with Andre, um, is officially at its close, as I understand it. Um, I keep trying to get clarification to see if it got extended, and I have heard nothing back, so I'll assume that everything is closed. Uh, okay. So everybody who made submissions uh, and participated in the challenge, thank you so much. Uh, I know we had a lot of fun with the guys who were in our discard uh, group building along with it. Uh, Richard and uh, uh, Tony, for sure, along with a couple other guys um, that I'm probably missing. Sorry um, about that. Yeah, sorry if I'm missing you. But uh, I know those are the guys we were interacting with almost, <laughs> it felt like daily. Oliver, I know, was working on it. Tail Dragger was doing a couple things, uh, some mm-hmm. good, some good stuff going on there. There's a lot of good conversations, uh, a lot of good encouragement and commiseration um, when we posted things, uh, both successes and failures. So uh, it was good, and I, I appreciate everybody kind of being part who was part of that, um, putting in the the right kind of spirit. And honestly, if you got a plane most of the way done, it doesn't matter if you didn't turn it in or whatever. You didn't make a deadline. It's okay. You know what you have an almost complete plane. Um, that you're probably excited about. <laughs> so finish it up and uh, continue to share the videos. We'd love to see it. And uh, that's right. You know, uh, I'm excited to see what the rest of you guys who were in it and and got some way down the line. I'd love to see what you end up with in the end. So keep sharing. Nice. Well, Matt, you were wanting to talk about uh, night flights and such. Um, yeah. Why don't you why don't you tell us what all goes into that? All right, so we normally have a plane history section, and so what I'm going to do is actually talk about the history of night flight. Okay, um, and that'll kind of set us up for what we're going to do here with RC. What I'm going to talk about with RC, which is flying your RC craft at as it gets dark and specifically at night. And what you're allowed to do and all that kind of stuff. So, like I said, as I was looking to close up the Marabou, I wanted to make it a plane I could fly at dusk. And so I wanted to have navigational lights on it. And then if it extended, that I would want to make sure to light it. Um, So I want to figure out, like, what the deal was. And then while I was there, I was like, you know, I bet you there's a history of flying at night. And it turns out there is. Uh, In... May 25th of 1910, um, an American aviator named Richard Brookins and Archibald Hoxie, these are 19th century names for sure, (laughs) (laughs) Um, they're recorded as being the official first um, night flyers, and they flew in Alabama at Orville Wright's first flight school. And so I guess while they were training, they, they flew at night. And they were the first ones to do it. So uh, they get the credit. Now, however, at that almost exact same time, within months of each other, all across other parts of the world, uh, in the aviation world, um, there were people doing pretty much the same thing. And one could argue they might even be earlier. Remember, this was in May. The Americans were 
credited with the first night flight. However, contenders claim that on March 1910, French aviator Emil Aubrun or Auburn, I, I can't tell if I typoed. <laughs> or Ubrun. Ubrun, yeah, maybe. Um, and flew in a, a Blairoy. Uh, it's French, so gosh, no. Uh, 11 monoplane. And that's, that's one of those ones that's like a bare bones, you know, there's a frame, a ba- like a bamboo frame and like a couple <laughs> canvas pieces to kind of get it flying. And a right. lot of cord um, from Vela Lugano, uh, Argentino. So he was in Argentina. Uh, and, or was it uh, British aviator Claude Graham White in, early, uh, in the early morning of April 23rd, um, 1910? And he flew from London to Manchester during a, mar- a mail air race, uh, which was so. Uh, one of the things that's difficult about that era is that, you know, airports weren't lit. There was barely, I don't even know if there was electricity. So there was no electric lights or anything like that. Um, or if there was, it was pretty limited. Uh, the countryside didn't have much. And so, and there's also no radios. At least there were no radios, radios in the planes or anything like that. So mm-hmm. you also had really, I, I forgot to look, but there's like very limited in, instrumentation on these planes. So these guys were basically like looking out the side of their plane to see if they're going to hit the ground. Well, there was, so there was electricity because electricity was the early 1800s, but uh, flight had only been around at this point for seven years. Yeah, exactly. So any airports that were put up were likely just strips in a field. Right. And a building. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like you didn't really have a need for it, so they weren't lit, probably. Right, exactly. Or if they were, it was, you know, office lighting. Right. Um, and so they said that basically the way the guy managed to navigate this at night, he had a friendly car uh, that would he would basically follow their lights along the road um, for a good portion of it, and then he basically finished the, the race using the rail station lights. So he followed a rail line. And use the station lights to guide him from place to place to place. Jeez. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm like, whoa, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And th- so this was, uh, this is five months before the first ground-to-air radio transmission that happened in August of that same year. So there are no radio really? communications or anything like that. You had to shout, I'm coming in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I-, I know they had signals and things like that. But basically, yeah. So it it was a little is a different world than the one we know today for sure, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and of course that continued on through World War One, which uh, happened shortly after. Um, you know, one of the advantages of having airtime uh, is if you can fly at night, you can actually see what your troops are up to, or see what your enemy troops are up to, and maybe make surprise bombing raids. And that's essentially what they did. They would also monitor U-boat activity, uh, which there were a handful of German U-boats that they would kind of track. Um, to see what they were up to, they'd bomb enemy trenches um, at both on both sides. Uh, the British had a bunch of critical battles to shoot down German zeppelins um, that were coming in and bombers that attempted to attack Britain. And these nighttime raids uh, actually caused the zeppelin fleet to be reduced from uh, by seventy nine zeppelins from a fleet of one hundred and twenty three. Wow. Which, that's significant. So mm-hmm. uh, these nighttime attacks were, I guess, easier to keep secret and easier to be surprised, which is a lot harder to maneuver against for sure. Um, I'm sure they had a bigger impact in World War One that I kind of summarized here, but that was some of the basics. Um, 
And then, of course, in the era after that, which was a lot of people call the golden era of aviation, um, this is where there were the barnstormers and the people doing those, those videos of all the crazy things you could do with flight. Come on and be a pilot, you know. <laughs> um, they were the pioneers, they were the, or, or they also called them the air jockeys. Um, in February 11th, 1911, Frenchman Robert Granzine uh, flew over Paris in a cauldron, a, a cauldron, which is um, <laughs> not a cauldron, a cauldron. We're just having a type of plane. great time um, of it. Shoot, go, go look it up. And, and they had electric lights. It just basically is a demonstration to show that you could fly at night. Um, it's it's one of those little single monoplanes, I thought, and it has like that kind of round, bullish front. Right. Uh, much like the Bristol. Uh, let's see, in July 23rd, 1913, Brandon... MB in Canada, uh, H, uh, sorry, it's, a uh, MB is the Manitoba. Wait, I, I can't think of the province, but it's, uh, one of the provinces and Brandon in Canada, HW Blakely flew a biplane with electric lights over livestock show. So that was an exciting time. Uh, that was, that was the first that they did it in Canada in 1916, American Art Smith, toured Asia, and he flew over Japan, over Ayama and uh, Akasuka, Mitsuda, and uh, the royal family, or at least members of the Matthew. Uh, my laptop decided to power down. So yeah. we're going to try to catch up uh, where I can. Uh, we're talking about the air jockeys. And we talked about, uh, I think we were uh, talking about the American um, who flew over Asia. And he flew over Japan. <laughs> there he goes again. <laughs> what? Oh, no, you're back. Okay, sorry. I am back. <laughs> I haven't ditched out yet, darn it. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess the uh, I guess the internet went between us because I, oh. I surely thought you did, you're powered down again. Yikes. Okay, well, no, I didn't power down. Okay, so... Okay. We're talking about the American who flew over Japan, um, and he flew over members of the royal family. Who it was a big, uh, you know, they had uh, emissaries and dignitaries from afar. They were showing off the military might, and there was a bunch of, um, you know, big much to do about you know celebrating Japan. And so, as part of this, he flew over the the celebrations at night, and there were fireworks and all that stuff. And when he landed, he basically he landed to uh, you know a hero's reception. Um, for doing something that I think nobody thought was possible at the time. Mm -hmm. um, in February 22nd, 1921, uh, Jack Knight flew the U.S. mail from North Platte to uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And freezing weather. Was like, you know, if you know what the middle of America is uh, in February, it is awful cold. cold. I mean, cold doesn't even begin to <laughs> about it. It's awful cold. Uh, Windchill's crazy. Anyway, so he nav he navigated by bonfires lit by local farmers, and he was the only one of several pilots to succeed in the effort. So what there were a number. What of people happened to the other guys? Yeah, I uh, didn't go into too much detail about that. It just indicated that he was the only one who made it. Um, mm. So I'm guessing either uh, people just said this sucks. I'm out, <laughs> and I'm hoping that that was the outcome and not something a little bit more grim. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I mean, when you think about the hurdles to this kind of effort, it was, you know, there's no satellite maps. Nobody really had aerial images at all. Um, 
the communications were nil or or limited. Uh, weather was basically what you knew. You couldn't call ahead to the next airport and see what's going on over there. Um, you had to fly by what you visually remembered. You know, there weren't a bunch mm -hmm. of, I don't think there were too many aerial maps or anything like that. I mean, there might have well, been. Any aerial maps would have been. Uh, Township maps, surveys. Yeah, rough, I mean, but yeah, but rough at best. I yeah. mean. Yeah. We, we we think of our aerial maps or even like the, the maps that we grew up with as kids, like, oh, those were old maps. We unfold them and all, but even those were extremely detailed and accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and they're and just, to think that they didn't have those. Yeah. It's Farmer John's territory over there, all 506 acres, you know, like that mm -hmm. whole section. We don't worry about that. Um, yeah. I, you know, so there's not, especially, there's probably not going to be very many landmarks noted, visual landmarks, you know, where, uh, we've learned to like, hey, those those are cell towers. That's a lake. There's these are things you will see from the sky and be able to see them at, you know, thousands of feet up. You know, um, you know what we think is important. Land base is not the same as when you're up in the air, uh, about what you can see and use mm -hmm. uh, for visual reference. Anyway, uh, the other thing is comfort. Man, it's cold up there. Those pilots had to bundle up like they were gonna be in a blizzard for about a week. Um, yeah. You know, and so they had to make it through the wind chill. And, I mean, they, you know, I, I keep thinking of um, a Christmas story when the, the mother uh, dresses the little brother like a tick. <laughs> like 600 layers of stuff. I don't and think like, I've I seen that. I can't put my arms down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen it. Oh, I thought, oh, it's a good one. Anyway, great, great Christmas uh, movie. Anyway, okay. and then the other thing is that uh, this, the airfields, weren't there weren't that many. You know, in those days, they, were, they weren't all over the place. Like right now, you can go to almost every other township and find uh, an airfield somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and every major city has one. So, and if, it, and if not for some reason, the interstates and highways, well, yep. interstates specifically, were designed to have straight sections every mm -hmm. so many number of miles to set down on. Yep. In any emergency, right. And then, now granted, um, you know, these planes were made for, they weren't made for runway takeoffs. You know, they were made mm -hmm. for grass field takeoffs. They're a little bit more rugged in that sense. But still, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't the same kind of landscape as it is today or even in World War II, you know. Um, so it's just something to think about when these achievements were happening in the early teens of the turn of the century. Um, and then, of course, there was the first nighttime air passenger service, which happened in 1926, May 1st, by the Deutsche Post, um, so German Post, and they went from Berlin to Königsberg, which is basically the like a Russian Baltic enclave of Kaliningrad. It's what it's called, or Kaliningrad now. Uh, and that uh, I, I looked at where that was, and that's basically to the northeast of Poland, along the Baltic Sea, and it's southwest of Lithuania. It's kind of sandwiched between those two countries, along the Baltic okay. Sea. So if you take Sweden and go to the right. Across the Baltic Sea, in there, it's kind of like, when you hit Sweden, turn right. Yeah, turn right. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's pretty rough. Anyway, so uh, a newly formed uh, Duchen Lufthansa, which I think you'll recognize the Lufthansa, uh, they and they basically used this mail route uh, that was done by the post service, um, and they ended up basically using that to create a nightly service that went from Berlin to Moscow. So basically, the post service would would move the mail, but they'd also carry passengers too, I guess, to make it somewhat more profitable. 
um, or not being a completely losing endeavor. And then they use that, that uh, airway um, and that familiarity to be able to extend that out basically about twice as far to um, the capital of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty neat. Um, then there was a first transatlantic flight. Um, and that was done in what, a, a year later. So April 16th and 17th, it, took, it was a two-day travel, a two-day trek um, uh, from in 1927 by Portuguese aviator, Jose Manuel Sarmento. And he was, um, he was a military officer, if I recall right. And de, uh, Sarmento de Beres. There's a lot of words I'm not familiar with. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your language, so I apologize. Uh, they went from Baloma, Portuguese, uh, Guinea, and Adorn- and then to Portuguese Guinea. Sorry. So from Baloma to Portuguese Guinea uh, in a Dornier DOJ wall seaplane. Uh, now, this uh, was the same seaplane that was used, not same plane, but the same type of plane that was used to attempt to reach the North Pole in 1925, a couple of years prior. Okay. Uh, I got a little picture of that for Joe to see. And it's basically a pusher, pusher-puller uh, engine pod on top of wing um, with basically a big boat plane. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, and that, and that was like one of those things where they had engine trouble and they had to stop and they had to you know, get it repaired and continue on their journey and stuff like that. So... Um, not that they, they had the trouble in the middle of the Atlantic, but they did, uh, they did have some trouble and it wasn't the first time that it had been attempted and they, uh, whoever it is had to abort because of some sort of trouble that they had to get rescued by boat, uh, rescued in the sense like, you know, they had to get whatever fixed, you know, right. stop their journey. Um, and then that kind of brings us to, I'll call it after, uh, after World War One and all the air jockey stuff, and then we started getting to kind of the 1930s, which is like the golden age of aviation. This is where aviation started to actually become a, shown as a viable business, and people started investing, and it became a more regular thing. And so in 1930s, electric runway lights uh, were put in Cleveland, Ohio, in the U.S. Um, movies were... Uh, th- those movies of the flying circuses and stuff like that in the prior years. Um, so basically, uh, I'm trying to like, so what they used to do to land on an airfield to see what the heck they were doing at night, they would either put spotlights on, on the wings, like hang, hang spotlights from the wings, or they would drop flares and then land by those. Oh, wow. So and then they're putting, putting runway lights on the airfield itself made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, air rates, air routes um, became like established in that period of time. Uh, American airway beacons uh, were put on mountaintops. So basically they were just tall, you know, those like watchtowers that you see in the forests. They yeah. basically be a bunch of those, but they'd be along the air routes and then they would light a beacon, uh, an electric beacon so that planes could see where the heck they're supposed to fly. Um, and uh, sort of the before instrumentation, are they mm-hmm. VOR stations? Yes, before the VORs and all that. Yeah. So you, you didn't know, like, where, where am I supposed to go? Because <laughs> right. you can't see the next airport. Um, yeah. And so they would use these kind of things. Um, uh, the, the air routes were not only established within the country, but they were established between the countries. So in European countries, um, they were also kind of brought about by the need for. European countries to get out to their European colonies in Africa and Asia. 
major airlines made travel more comfortable, and they tried to make it like trains. So they would include, um, they realized at night they could actually include uh, moving pictures. And they had their first uh, demonstration that it wasn't too noisy on a plane to be able to hear a movie. Hmm. Uh, and it became a, a, a standard luxury. And probably one of the reasons why we still watch movies on planes um, today. See, I would beg to differ because I have been on a passenger plane. Yeah. That was way too noisy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. But I'm just saying they were like, you know, they're like, there's no way. It couldn't possibly work. And I guess they figured out a way um, to make okay. it at least enjoyable. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. Well, original, um, I mean, movie, movie, moving pictures, movies back then, mm-hmm. uh, depending, didn't have sound to begin with. So yeah. were they, were they sounds at this point? Like, did they have I audio? Thought, I thought that, so I'm trying to think. So the era of Scott Joplin, who's a pianist who basically did a lot of his, a lot of his work was done for moving pictures. And it was in the early 20s and late teens. So the moving picture went from a silent film with uh, musical accompaniment to something that you could actually watch and listen to um, in the, with, within a short period of time. It was about five to ten years. Okay, very, yeah, the, the, the 20s. Yeah, I mean, if you look at all of his works, like it's it's a like an eight-year period, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because that's when people needed music to go with their movies uh, as opposed to actually just watching the movie and the sound that went with it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so uh, they would do that. That would be one of the luxuries. Um, and they would set it up to be like a train. They would have, you know, beds and they'd have all these other things. Um, and they would even have, and they had electric lights. And all of a sudden you could actually be comfortable and you could see what you were doing. You could actually read a book or whatever it was you were going to do um, while you were traveling. Um, and that's the other thing is they were also, they flew low. Like they didn't fly at high altitudes and they weren't very fast. So your trips took a while, and they weren't necessarily the most smooth trip in the world. That's part of the reason why airliners go up as high as they do. They go over the cloud layers, and they it, it significantly smooths out the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were basically going at about maybe 250 miles an hour max, and like today's jets go over 500 miles an hour. So, yeah. I mean, it's a much slower trip. Um, and, of course, tickets uh, were prohibitively expensive. You needed to be... Very wealthy to be able to afford a ticket on an airline. But as you know, like with with um, regularity and familiarity, um, prices uh, of everything kind of drop and it becomes more accessible. Um, then airports become worth building and, you know, and then all of a sudden air travel becomes something that anybody can use. As you can, as we see in the coming decades, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that pretty much, you know, that brings us to almost World War II. Uh, and then at that point, I think we'll just kind of leave it to what the histories we've talked about. Uh, night flight continues to be a thing, and it certainly is one of the tactics that's used in warfare to, you know, make operations unseen, right, as, as best as you can. Um, right. Night is still the preferred way to do it. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. As a history, we may continue that part of it, um, or we may just leave it at that, because I think at that point it becomes a little less exotic and unusual uh, and interesting. <laughs> I think I feel like it becomes a little bit more mundane in the things you kind of we, we know, you know, as we know it today, you know. Right. Uh, there are definitely certainly innovations, uh, and maybe we'll touch on them separately as we go. But that's it for the histories. 
Okay. So, so now on to uh, what proper RC night flying? Yeah, let's talk about the RC night flying. Um, one of the things that so I, while I was looking at it, I'm like, okay, well, what do we need to do to comply with the regulations at hand? Uh, what are they? Who are, who's imparting them? And what do they mean for us when we're building our planes? Like, what should we have in mind? I, I'm not going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk basically about ways you can do these things, but we're, we'll go into detail some other time about um, what what products I would select, maybe, you know. And I, I, it's pretty straightforward, but at the same point, there, there's a little bit of nuance and all that stuff too. So we'll get into that separately. But let's mm-hmm. talk about the regulations. So as I read it, let's start with uh, the big guys at the top. And I, I apologize for anybody in other countries, but I know a lot of these regulatory agencies have very similar re- restrictions or guidelines regarding aviation. It seems to be pretty consistent across the board. Now, it's a little different in different places, but it's pretty close. Um, so I'm going to go over the FAA rules because I have them in front of me, and that's what I looked up today and yesterday. So let's talk about that. So it seems like basically for the FAA, recreational flying, you are required to follow the safety guidelines of an FAA-recognized community-based organization, which is loosely identified as people kind of like AMA. Now, that's not official, you know, wording or anything like that. But but basically, um, whatever your community require or you know requires of you, do that and make sure you're safe. Um, and that's really kind of all they all they talk about. I mean, there really isn't a whole lot that goes into it. But recreational flying is purely flying for fun. You're not getting any monetary gain or anything like that. There's a very kind of limited window what that is, but that's most of anybody in the RC community who's just going out on the weekend, having a, having a blast or during the week, just going out to have fun. Right. You know, you're not doing it as a business. You're not, um, you're trying to sell a product You're trying to make money off of it. Um, now when it comes down to make money, then it's, then it falls under different dur- jurisdictions. It's not recreational flying. It is, uh, the, as we call it here, Part 107. Um, that is the regulatory section, the title uh, of our, uh, of our, let's see, the, it's the title of our Code of Federal Regulations uh, that governs, you know, uh, for-profit unmanned aerial systems. So it says it prohibits the operations of uh, unmanned aerial operation or unmanned aerial systems at night, which is defined as the time between the end of evening civil twilight and the beginning of morning civil twilight, which is 30 minutes before and after dawn, respectively, uh, dawn and dusk. So 30 minutes after dusk or 30 minutes before dawn, uh, as published by the Air Almanac, uh, converted to a local time. Um, you uh, To do any kind of night flying, you will need to request a 107.29 waiver as a night waiver. The, um, the actual name of the waiver is a daylight operations waiver. Uh, it's basically saying that you're only allowed to operate in daylight and you're asking them to, to waive this restriction. Uh, to do so, you'll need to provide the following information. And this is uh, according to uh, FA.com. Oh, wait, that's not FA.com. That is... Um, okay. Where did I put that reference? Um, it, it's a website. We'll provide the reference down below. Um, 
Yeah, I believe it's a drone registration.net. It's how to fly your drone at night legally, part 107, Night Waver is the, the thing. And we help, we'll have a link in the description down below. Um, so basically, uh, what you do is you, you provide the following information. Um, you are requesting a waiver, or, uh, which, which there's a difference. An airspace authorization is a short term, and it's six months. So you may actually be requesting an authorization. Um, if you're requesting a waiver, it's a longer time between six months and two years, and it grants access to a bigger operating area. So if you're looking for small stuff, it's typically an authorization. If you're looking for a larger, longer-term stuff, it's, you know, especially if you have like a larger job and you need to do things at night, like if you're doing a construction site and that kind of thing, you're going to want a waiver. Um, so it's worth noting that most of these requests to fly and control the airspace that we hear about have to do with airspace authorizations and not the, the waivers. So typically, when you are going for this, you're going to be requesting authorizations. Um, that's why we kind of went over those definitions. But basically, you're going to be providing a method. Uh, you, you want to show that in, in, as you fill out the forms in the FAA registration for the request, you're going to provide a method that the remote pilot can maintain visual line of sight uh, during the darkness hours. Now, if I remember right, when we went through all the regulations that are proposed, there is a whole section on night flying, and we did cover a lot of that stuff, and it, re it requires basically providing um, a light that's uh, visible for three statute miles, uh, and et cetera. There's a, there's a whole list, and we covered that before, and we will cover it again, but I did not cover it here because this is what's currently um, what the current regulations are for the, at least the next, what, year and a half or two years. Um, uh, you'll also need to provide a method uh, for the remote pilot to see and avoid other aircraft, people on the ground or ground-based structures and obstacles during the darkness. So basically you need to be aware of what your surroundings are and anything you might run into and show them that you can do that um, from your remote uh, location. Uh, you also need to provide a method by which the remote pilot will be able to continuously know and determine the position, altitude, and attitude and movement of their small unmanned air aircraft. So like an INAV map system that has all the information, you know, indicating that it's, uh, you know, one of those kind of systems uh, will probably be what you'll have to do with that. Uh, anticipate safety questions. Um, and, and you're going to want to answer them in that section. So, Given that technology can fail, what are you going to do to make sure that the connection to your drone isn't lost? So, you know, if my connection is a 433 megahertz connection through iNav from my computer to the to the flight controller, um, how am I going to make sure that if the battery dies on the laptop, what am I going to do? Do I have a backup? Do you know, like like mine did today? Like, what am I going to do to make sure that that if that fails, how am I going to know what's going on with my drone or you know, what if my controller goes or, or whatever, right? You want to address those there. Um, having one or more visual observer is also a good way to address the guidelines saying like, I'm not the only person looking. Not only that, but I've got a guy over there and I've got a person over there. And we also have radio contact over this way, just in case everything goes wrong. Um, you want to make sure to describe that, how you'll communicate with those people. Um, is it going to be radio? Is it going to be standing you know, close enough where you can talk to them directly? Um, and you want to be very specific here. The more specific, the more likely they'll uh, grant the waiver or grant the authorization. Uh, lastly, uh, there's, there's two more. 
Um, you want to provide a method to assure that everybody who's participating in this, the uh, AUS, the Small Unmanned Aircraft Operations, have all the knowledge uh, to be able to recognize and overcome the illusions that happen, visual illusions that happen at night. And, and that's is more going when you look at full-scale piloting. Uh, they cover like, hey, if you're stuck in the dark in your plane and you still, you're still flying, you, need, you haven't been able to get down, you have to be aware that these are problems, and I'll cover them in a second, um, that occur. And you need to be able to understand what they are and how to kind of avoid them. So uh, visual illusions are caused by darkness, understanding psychological conditions that might possibly degrade night vision. So uh, let's see. Night illusions, uh, officially, that refers to the, uh, the tricks that the eye can play on you at night. Um, they can also cause confusion during night flights. They can also um, make sure that you address how you're going to deal with these illusions and how you're going to remedy situations such as flying for shorter periods of time, maybe using a window of time to allow your eyes to adjust. So basically that way you're not like stuck in the goggles all the time or something. Um, uh, and basically making sure that you, when you turn on the lights and you, you essentially go night blind for a minute, that you're giving yourself enough time to adjust to get back into normal vision. Um, and you plan to deal with and then explain how you're going to deal with these night illusions. I'll kind of list them. Um, these are the kind of the big ones. There's a big list, but, um, and I will have, I have a couple of references here and we may put them down below, but basically autokinesis, which is phantom motion, uh, which is like a protracted staring may cause things to appear to move that aren't actually moving the way they look like they're moving. Um, it's just kind of like when you're staring at something too long, it looks like it's going somewhere and it's not, or, or it's going a different direction than it is. Fixation, um, so or fascination. It's basically when you just like stare at the one thing that you're looking at. Like for you, I mean, it's like looking at a drone, right? Like I'm looking at my drone. I want to make sure I'm looking at my drone. I got to see my drone. I want to see where it's going, right? Well, when you ignore the orientation cues and their fixed position based on because you, you have something you're trying to do. So you basically uh, ignore things because you're too busy focused on what you're trying to do or, or on a specific object. Um, reversible perspective illusion. So it's the inability to determine if an object is moving forward or away from you. And at night, when you're pretty far away and it's just a, literally a series of dots of light, um, it becomes a little bit more difficult to be able to discern forward or back. So that's something to be aware of. Size distance illusion. So dimly lit objects appear to be further away then brightly the objects and that appear closer. But if you've got, let's say, a plane and maybe your battery's dying and the light starts to dim, even though it's in the same spot, you go, oh no, it's going away. Like it's flying away. Well, you need to know that that's a possibility, that that's a trick that's happening. It's not actually what's going on. Um, and describing like, oh no, I'm going to check my eye now. I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm looking at all the things that are going on. And then lastly, uh, one of the items that they have listed is flicker vertigo which are flashing lights may cause nausea or disorientation. So uh, I don't know that I've, I've ever had any of that stuff, but uh, they're definitely certain. I could see how those are things that happen, especially when you're trying to focus on a task in basically pure blindness or pure darkness, except the bright lights that are, you know, identifying or illuminating your plane or aircraft, uh, quad, whatever. 
Um, and then lastly, the fifth thing that you want to provide when you're putting in for these uh, authorizations is provide a method to increase the conspicuousness of the small unmanned aircraft so they can be seen at a distance of at least three statute miles. And that's basically three miles. It's statute is just the official measurement. Um, three statute miles, unless a system is in place that can avoid all non-participating aircraft. I'm not sure how, like maybe we're doing it in a building. Um, maybe it's being um, flown below a tree line in a field. So it's very likely that it'll be, you know, uh, in contact with any non-participating aircraft might be a way to identify that, uh, depending on your situation. So that, those are things you kind of want to make sure if you're putting in for the 107 waiver, make sure to include those things. Make sure you identify the problems ahead of time and identify how you're going to mitigate those. They want to make sure that you are keenly aware of what risks you're taking and that you've thought ahead and are planning for them so that if they do happen, you're aware of them and it won't be an actual issue. So that's, that's the FAA side of this. Um, and of course, obviously with the recreation, it just kind of says, uh, just look at your community-based organization, whatever they're okay with, we'll probably be okay. So <laughs> if you're not making money at what you're doing, let's talk about what the AMA has. Um, and this is basically, I pulled from like a law enforcement guide PDF and I double checked, like these are in the regulations the AMA put out, but uh, or the guidelines that they put out. But this is basically to inform police officers of and and law enforcement people about what, like what to look for, I guess, for night flying. And this I I pulled it kind of as an excerpt. It's a number six in the document. It's a PDF. We'll link it below uh, in the description. It says unmanned aerial systems or drone night flight operations is number six. So I think it's a couple pages in. AMA remote pilots may fly drones or SUASs uh, at night when done in accordance with AMA's night flying requirements. The remote pilots of this uh, the, the aircraft must utilize an onboard lighting system that allows the pilot to clearly see the unmanned aerial system and discern its orientation and attitude by means of colored lights and or oriented light scheme. Flights must not be conducted over any people or at locations where there is no chance or at a location that there is no chance of people entering the designated flight area. Altitudes are to be limited to 400 feet above ground level. LED lights, uh, lighting shown up, uh, that show up in best in total darkness. So it is recommended that they that they're not flown at dusk, which was news to me before uh, a little bit, a uh, little bit ago. FAA authorization, um, FAA authorized by public law, uh, one section one one two or one twelve dash ninety five section three three six part C, when following a community based organization AMA safety guidelines, or it says in parentheses AMA. Um, but any CBO. So if you've, if you're following uh, the flight test community association, you're a member and they have guidelines on night flying. The FAA says, as long as you're doing it in that safe manner, uh, you know, that's acceptable. Uh, 107 or non CBO remote pilots, uh, recreational operations may not operate as SUAS at night. So you can't operate a unmanned aerial system at night if you're not part of one of them. 
um, not uh, not author yeah, not FAA authorized uh, FAA UAS Part 107 or unmanned air system daylight only operations official sunrise to official sunset local time must apply for a certificate of waiver. So if you don't belong to those, you can put in for a certificate of waiver issued in accordance with um, Title 14, uh, Code of Federal Regulations, uh, Section 107.2, and provide justification that the operation can be done safely and conducted by satisfying performance-based standards. So basically, you'll have to do what we just talked about with the Part 107. If you, even if you aren't a Part 107 pilot, you're a recreational flyer, you don't belong to AMA, or you're not in an AMA field, or uh, any other community-based organizations, which, by the way, have not been identified by the FAA. So technically, we're all kind of flying not in a CBO because none of them have been identified. Um, and then basically, yeah, you'll, you'll have to put in for a permit, uh, put in for a waiver. Um, so, I mean, th those are the regulations. I know that's kind of what, so all of that being said is either you're going to have to put in a waiver, but basically if you're going to do it through AMA guidelines, um, you just need to make sure that you can tell what, what, <laughs> what direction your plane is going, that you can see it, uh, and that you can make sure that it's not going to be endangering anybody is, is what I take from it. And it was a lot all at once. Joe, do you have any questions about that? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I trust you did a good job explaining that because uh, basically once once we got into the part 107 and we got a couple minutes into that uh, before, based on your notes, where you even got into airspace authorizations and waivers, mm -hmm. uh, Skype cut out on us. I thought your laptop lost power again. <laughs> so, yeah, I was sitting here for a while just like, all right, he'll eventually call me back. Oh, yeah, I didn't see the Skype quit on me. I was like, what in the heck? <laughs> uh, anyway, so, and then I was also indicating, basically, if you're not a CBO remote pilot or 107 or you're or you're flying under 107, you need to put in a waiver if you're doing night flying. Okay. So, so one of the advantages of being part of a CBO um, is that if you're following their night flight, you know, guidelines, you are authorized by the FAA to do so. Okay. Well, cool. Well, anything that you had gone over before, I'll be able to hear again more than once during editing. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, is there any, any questions you have about like, and, and what I wanted to do now is to just quickly go over what lighting, the lighting schemes or basically uh, how you light commercial aircraft or how commercial aircraft are, are lit. Um, and with that, we can take that as a tip of one way you can light your aircraft, especially if you're looking for a scale look or anything like that. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, and so basically what, uh, what you'll see is that um, a, a lot of the navigation lights follow the naval av uh, the naval navigation lights mm -hmm. where the left or port side of the aircraft is red and the starboard or right side of the craft shows green and that there's typically a white light on the top or at least on the on the and and the aft 
So at the back of the craft. So if it's going away from you, you'll see a white steady light. And at the top of the mast, you'll either see a beacon or a blinking light at the top. Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll either see red or green or green and red or red and green, depending on if it's coming away or going towards you or if you're looking at the left or right side of the boat. So, um, sorry, starboard or port side of the boat. Um, okay. And then, uh, of course, if it's coming at you and it's got the landing lights on, which are required for, um, you know, for taxiing and, and coming in for landings uh, and takeoffs, uh, you'll see those will be shooting forward. And I find that uh, as an RC or I've seen some planes with that. And that's really helpful to know, yes, that plane is coming at me. Um, so one of the things that's also interesting is that commercial uh, aircraft have strobe lights on the back side of the wing. So those red and green lights actually shine only forward. Um, and then the back lights are actually white strobe lights. So if you're looking from the back side of the craft, from basically the wing back, you will see a white steady light on the back and a strobe light on, a, on each wingtip. And then what you'll oftentimes see also is a red strobe on either the underside or the top tail of the light. And basically those go on when the engines are on and it's moving. It's basically mm -hmm. to indicate to ground crew that this aircraft is is lit up, baby. So watch out. <laughs> <laughs> and it may be moving, you know, and to, to be aware that it's it's not just stationary on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the kind of lights. And you can, and by mimicking those, it does make a pretty straightforward um, way of discerning. Is it going, you know, left, right, forward, away from you, towards you, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I find that even uh, if you've got really powerful LEDs, and there's a couple kits out there that are very powerful, um, even at dusk, they make a big difference. Uh, as, as you and I have both <laughs> found out the hard way, everything becomes a silhouette in the sky. If you've got a couple lights that show up in that silhouette, you might still be able to fly that thing successfully to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> without going, oh, gosh, what's it doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these might have been helpful a couple nights we were out there. Um, and honestly, if I think I can, if I can find a couple ways to do this pretty easily, I might, you know, recommend that basically we get a couple systems built up and we just make sure that we put them on each plane as we build them, you know? Yeah. It would definitely have to be something that was easily and quickly insertable. Right. And I'm thinking maybe uh, Velcro based or a magnet, yeah, magnetized as far as being able to stick it to the plane kind of deal. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, like maybe it runs externally of the plane, like you're just running it on the outside. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. So we'll see. Um, one of the common ways, and you could look up. There's a number of videos on YouTube of people kind of coming up with different systems. There's, and you can, and what's neat about looking at those, if you're not really sure which system you might want to do, um, is look at like how it looks in the in the air. Like they'll have videos of how it looks as it's flying past and things like that. If mm -hmm. you've been to Flight Fest and you've seen the night flights. Joe, you've seen what LED strips can do to oh, yeah. a, a white you know, Adams Ready Board plane. It lights that thing up like a Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and depending on which LED set, um, if it's a 12 volt or a 5 volt or 12 volts, those things are bright. Yeah. Um, and the 5 volts, and of course it depends on the strip. We'll, we'll get into that. But basically, you buy those strip LED LED strips, um, and they run off the, either the voltage from a BC or they run off of uh, the battery direct and you know, 
you're good to go. Um, and then you could use for the pinpoint lights, you could use those either um, three millimeter or five millimeter LEDs, the traditional LEDs that you see that have mm-hmm. been used forever. Uh, or you can even get as little like the SMDs, the little uh, diodes uh, that are mounted on like the little surface chips. They're really tiny. They're the kinds like they get used in like the itty bitty remote control cars, the 187 scale kind of little guys. Um, you know, I had some uh, some RGB uh, LEDs at one time. Cause, uh, mm-hmm. Buddy and I were going to do some experimenting, mm-hmm. um, and I and they were a little like white puck. Yeah, had the arms coming off of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I've seen those too. Uh, those are typically individual LED, like mm-hmm. addre- addressable LEDs. Um, yeah, that, and that's the other thing is, it, and we'll get into it later when we get into it. Um, but they're not LA, every LED is made equal. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, some of them can be addressable, uh, and it's RGB addressable. So it's like one chip or one cob. Uh, it's what they call because it, it looks yellow. Uh, some of the whites. Um, mm. And basically, what they'll do is, um, you know, you can you can put them in series, and through a flight controller, I think Betaflight has like a whole section on LEDs, so you can light your quad a certain way, right? And you can also have it like during different arm situations, it will light differently. So that way you can see visually what's going on when you're flipping switches. Okay. You can, you can see it on your thing. Well, that's something you can also do on your plane if you put a flight controller in it. Um, a lot of people will, rather than do a flight controller and get into all that, they'll get into Arduino. Maybe because they use it or they know it or they found a tutorial and they'll use that to basically load lighting because Arduino has a lot of lighting programs mm-hmm. that use the strips and addressable uh, RGBs. Um, and, you know, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to that. I know at some point I want to make a plane. <laughs> this is so dumb, and it certainly strikes my age. Uh, I want one to be like a Knight Rider plane or like a Cylon where the, where the red goes back and forth across the front of the plane. Ooh. Right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Like a like a flight like an arrow. You know what I mean. And it's just like, and it would have to. Mm-hmm. I'd probably have to get a speaker set to make that have that noise. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be able to be <laughs> one of those little peso speakers because those little things are. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. well, <laughs> have to be amplified a little bit. You know. Um, I don't know. It'd be fun. Um, but th- th- those are. I mean, th- and as we've seen at Flight Fest, I mean, I saw somebody who made like a nutball that had. Pac-Man on one side and a and a blinky ghost on the other, and he would flip it and it would turn into like uh, one of those ones where the power pellet got eaten. You know <laughs> what I mean? I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. But you know, really, your imagination could be your limit. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point. So it's something I'm definitely going to dabble into and get a little bit more into as we go. There's a number of planes like the P61 I want to light up. Mm-hmm. In a certain way. Oh, and the other way, other things you can do, even those little finger lights you get from the dollar store for the for the kids. Like, you know, when you're doing a night outing, you get these little LEDs that have like a, they have a switch and a battery and an LED. And that's pretty much all they are. And they have like a little elastic strip that goes around your finger. And so the kids are like, I'm, I'm pointing you with a laser. And it's like, it's just an LED. But Wow. Uh, but I've not seen these, but it doesn't surprise me. I've got a whole like hundred pack of them. Because I figured I could light a couple planes with them, you know, string them up and have some fun with it. Right. I don't know. And I figured, uh, you know, put a couple in a wing and all of a sudden now you you have orientation. So we'll see. Um, but that's something to look forward to as we go forward. But in the meantime, 
uh, just something to think about. If you haven't thought about it, it's possible, um, but with limitations. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the links uh, we'll, we'll put in the show notes. There's a number of them there. If we missed one, you know, reach out to us. Just, just give us an email and say, hey, what would you do there? Um, and we'll see if we can't get that to you really quick. If, if there's anything you'd like to, when we get towards the lighting, if you want, uh, ask us uh, to cover a certain specific topic, um, or detail about that, please reach out. Let us know. We want to know what you're, what you would love to hear more about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anything else on that front? No, nothing on that. Um, do you have any questions? Well, again, I wasn't here for a lot of it. So, well, okay. I mean, but you know, the, the general topic, uh, is there anything you would like to, uh, you're interested about with LEDs in the planes you have? And not so much. I mean, nothing. Nothing comes to head, comes to mind right away. But okay. Um. Yeah, I just I haven't thought too much about putting lights in my planes. You know. Other than just, going, boy, it sure would be nice to have some way to tell which way that plane's going. <laughs> yeah, or oh boy, it sure would be nice if I had a couple LEDs on the fogies so we could fly mm-hmm. with the night radiance. Oh my, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Those night think, radians were beautiful. Oh my gosh, they are. They they do such a good job. Uh, and honestly, I think that's uh, that's worth doing. You and I putting that together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think so. That about, I guess that wraps it up for this today. I really, uh, are we going to do anything? Uh, what's on your workbench? What, what are you looking forward to getting into next? Um. Well, for the next little bit, I'm going to be uh, continuing to dive headfirst into uh, quad stuff. Uh, specifically trying to figure, like, I gotta figure out how to fly this one, mm-hmm. um, play around with it a bit, figure out how to get, how to work the camera and all, which I've already, like, I did a hover test in the driveway and mess with the camera a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but just figure that all out and what all I want to do with that. So, I mean, that's sort of tangentially related because mm-hmm. it's not, I guess, maybe the kind of quads that I thought that I would initially get into, but yeah. Um, also, than, what uh, I'm sure at some point we maybe we'll start picking your brain about, you know, what kind of business opportunities that might bring or whatever. I know you've been thinking about that kind of thing as you went. Wait, this is an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the thought behind getting that was how do I branch into another area of the hobby without it hitting the bank quite so hard, and that was mm-hmm. to try to try to make a little profit off of whatever i'm doing with it so mm-hmm. that, that's sort of what that's going for and I'll, I'll see what i can do with it and uh okay. we'll talk about it periodically Good. other than that um maybe somewhere in a mix of all that uh redoing the fuse of the of the nubatross so i can yeah get in there and change that coupler out and then i still got the seven sitting over there okay. uh waiting to go yeah and you're then, almost you're, i forgot you're almost done with that I'm almost done with it. I got to do the the cockpit, um, the wing tips, and then get electronics in it. Okay. And, so it's, uh, it's really not that far away. I will make sure to share the landing gear picture. I think you've seen it, but look look closely at the landing gear picture I have for the uh, Javelin. Because that will identify kind of what you need to do to put landing gear on that plane, too. Because mm-hmm. I, I thought that came out really well and made it pretty clear, like, how how to do it. It's pretty pretty simple. And it seems to work really well. So mm-hmm. good. All right, cool. Um, I don't know what I, I'm going to be just, uh, I've got pill jewelry. It's still February. So I've got uh, an, a 
about 20 or 15 planes to cut out and have ready for this coming weekend for STEM night. Um, I've also got Buildory to build like crazy still and try to fly some of these planes that I've been putting together. And I've, I've just had a couple things that kind of put some of it on hold. So I'm going to have to be a building fool real quick. Um, so I'm going to be doing that. So next time you're here, hopefully it'll be, uh, should be about the end of Buildory. Uh, with any luck, I'll have reported some successes, hopefully a lot. Um, if not, it'll be a lot of fun. It's honestly one of the things I look forward to about it is the community that kind of springs up and says, I'm in, uh, mm-hmm. and all the fun that we get to have, like as we kind of build together and share our experiences. That's really okay. what it's about. Anyway, so that we'll talk about that next time. All right. Well, um, let's get out of here, Joe. Let's say we covered everything. Got anything else? No, I, right now I got nothing. Uh, if you have any questions, just, you know, write in, let us know. Uh, let us know if there's anything you want us to try to clarify. Uh, or maybe if there's anything we got wrong, let us know what kind of knuckleheads we are so we can help everybody else understand what's the right way. There you go. Well, guys, as always, we appreciate you tuning in and listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as much as Matthew enjoyed monologuing. I didn't mean Um, to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, power went out, Skype dropped. Oh, yeah. Not your fault. Uh, It's not our Uh, normal episode that way, no. (laughs) Um, Yes, feel free to reach out to us, aviationrcnoob at gmail.com or Matthew at Matthew at aviationrcnoob.com or Joe at Joe at aviationrcnoob.com. And I'm just mm-hmm. off uh, off kilter from my normal outro at this point because we can't. <laughs> you know how to reach out to us. Get a hold of us. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you'd like to hear. Uh, let us know if you have any questions you want us to answer. Uh, come back next week or next time and hear us talk about what are we going to talk about next time? I uh, couldn't even tell you. We, we hadn't talked about that yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. I don't know, but it'll be good. So come on in and listen. It'll be good. Thanks All for right, listening. Guys.